Hello and welcome back to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Last week, we finished up the story of how I got onto the water, my life in Hong Kong, tall ships, super yachts, all that kind of stuff. And I left you with the minor cliffhanger of uh, what do you do when Sir Robin Knox Johnson offers you his Open 60 to sail solo around the world. The major feedback I got from last week's podcast was that uh, people wanted me to go a little bit slower, not to uh, skip past all the good stories. So... This week I'm going to take a very particular chunk of uh, what happened next and that's going to be the preparation of the Open 60 uh, for the race which was an eight-week process and then the qualification passage I had to do a two and a half thousand mile journey to prove myself on the boat before joining the start of the race and then uh, and then my delivery down to the start and, uh, and arriving in the start area. So let's kick off and, and restart the story. Um, yeah, so Robin gave me the opportunity to take his Open 60 around the world. And I guess the thing we've got to do first is introduce the Open 60 uh, sailboat class. Now, I'd just come back from sailing a 68-foot yacht around the world, one of the Clipper 68s, um, boats which I uh, love dearly. I, I really had a soft, uh, and do have a soft spot for them. The difference between that and the Open 60 is the difference between um, a station wagon and a, uh, a race car between uh, a Winnebago and a, an IndyCar. The Open 60s are, I guess you'd call them a Grand Prix-style boat. They're carbon fiber, they're extremely light, and they have uh, a lot of the cutting-edge innovations that are available in sailing. We take it from the kind of the bottom up, they have canting keels. So if we're not used to this phrase, the keel that hangs down beneath the boat, which gives it both writing moment and lateral resistance in the water, on these boats, it's kind of hinged, and that means that as the boat's sailing along and it starts to tip away from the wind, the keel can be moved to the windward side of the boat, and that alters the relationship between the hull and the keel and stands the hull and therefore the mast more upright against the, against the wind. That means the boat's stiffer. It means that it's uh, able to power up uh, more uh, it doesn't spill as much of the wind from the sails via heeling over. The boat also has twin rudders, which means that as the boat starts to heel over normally with a single rudder, the rudder is vertical when the boat's in a resting position on the water. But as you start to heel over when you're powered up, the rudder starts to take on um, more of the characteristics of an aerolon on an aeroplane. At 45 degrees, it's providing both a left and right change in direction to the boat. It's also providing a somewhat up and down uh, force uh, which is being transmitted to the back of the boat. Um, after a short, a short period beyond uh, 45 degrees, the aerolon is, well the rudder is more aerolon than anything else and that can lead to it no longer having the ability to turn the boat to port and to starboard and that's where the rudder stalls out and you broach to windward or to leeward. So what these twin rudder boats have is Two rudders kicking out at an angle on the back of the boat, uh, kicking out to an angle to port and to starboard. And as the boat heels over, the leeward rudder starts to become more and more vertical. So actually, as the boat hits about 20-odd degrees, the rudder is perfectly vertical in the water. And that means you've got more grip, it means you've got less cavitation, and you're less likely to stall out a rudder. Boats have also got dagger boards, and the dagger boards are there to provide more lateral resistance. Um, if we imagine... The boat uh, in front of us, uh, we can see the keel and the, the hull and, and the rig and everything. We look at it in silhouette. When the keel is hinged to one side or the other, that silhouette that we see is foreshortened. Um, suddenly, the lateral uh, uh, resistance that's offered to the water is reduced, and the boat would therefore have a lot of leeway. So the dagger boards are slid down on the leeward side, uh, in much the same way that lee boards would have gone down on a, a Dutch chalk or something like that. We always know in sailing that there's there's nothing new in sailing, right? Let's say 5,000 years of history, lo and behold, someone's thought up uh, dagger boards before in, in different forms. But the dagger boards go down um, when the keel is canted, 
and that means that we've got that lateral resistance. And we'll be running with um, sideways board pressures of about five to 10 tons at max. So you can see how much it's stopping the boat from sliding sideways. The hulls themselves are incredibly broad. If you look at the, the point of maximum beam, it's around the shrouds and it carries that almost to the back. And we're talking about a 20 meter boat, a 60 foot boat, which is carrying 17 or 18 foot, about 5.2 meters of beam from the shrouds right to the very back. So this thing's like a surfboard basically and incredibly flat on the bottom. The hull construction is carbon fiber and on the bottom of the boat it's monolithic, that is to say it's absolutely solid. On the sides of the boat it's cord, which means it's got a, uh, a, a sandwich construction of outer skin of carbon fiber and then a core of Nomex foam and then inside that another skin of, um, of carbon fiber and that means the boat's incredibly strong, incredibly stiff and weight for weight much stronger than any comparable construction in uh, in steel, in wood, in fiberglass. So these boats are really very specifically made for what they're doing. Inside the boat, uh, up to eight bulkheads. Uh, I know an Open 60 that had 11 bulkheads. Five of those are watertight, meaning the boat can be subdivided into five watertight compartments, which means it's incredibly safe, and that's what you want as you go into the uh, Southern Ocean. And then on deck, you've got a deck-mounted boom. That means the boom doesn't come down and meet the, or doesn't come and meet the mast. It comes down and meets the deck at the base of the mast, which does two things. First, firstly, it creates an end plate effect, which is to say that as you know, the wind is passing across the mainsail, it's not just flowing from the front to the back of the sail. It's dispersing across the entire uh, form of the sail, and it's coming off the tip of the sail at the top and it's coming off the foot of the sail at the bottom and on an aeroplane you have those little winglets that um, that kick up at the ends of the wings which we know help with uh, efficiency they are non-planar winglets um, on the uh, other end of the wing that's butted up against the body the wing remains very efficient at its base because it's got that uh, perpendicular meeting with the hull of the aircraft on most boats the boom is up in the air and there's actually an incredible amount of end wash coming down off the boom which lowers the efficiency of the lower part of the sail. On the open 60s with the boom meeting the deck a lot of that end plate, a lot of that wash off the boom is actually negated by the deck so it's a more efficient way of running a sail. What it also means is that if you are dismasted the boom won't be lost or shouldn't be lost and that can then be hinged to an upright um, upright uh, attitude and then uh, new rigging applied and then you've got yourself a, a little mast to be getting your back self you know a 30 foot high mast to get you back to wherever so all very very specifically made for offshore uh, sailing and specifically made to be as fast as possible the rig above this these boats um, I think now limited at 27 meters but um, Spartan certainly was slightly bigger than that and was 29 meters she had a carbon fiber um, rotating wing mast. So what that means is that the mast, instead of having that kind of uh, normal oval mast section, it had a teardrop section, a very aerodynamic shape, and the mast could be rotated at its base um, through, well, almost, I guess, through about 90 degrees, really, if you pushed it, but you'd normally be moving it about 30 degrees. The, the sail's got a deep kind of half a teardrop shape to it, so the front edge is kind of... Um, coming normally off the back of the mast and then going through that slightly tighter shape on the front edge of the cord shape and then tapering off to the the exit at the back of the sail. What we can do is rotate the front of the mast so it, the center of the mast lines up with the shape on the front of the sail and thereby reduce a huge amount of the inefficiency on the sail that's caused by uh, turbulence off a normal classic rig which is just a giant oval bar basically on the front of the sail which is creating a hugely messy aerodynamic profile on the front of the sail. Suddenly the rotating wing mast can add I think it's about 10% to the power of the sail. Now there's good things and bad things about that because the other thing is that they tend to be very long in cord length from front to back and certainly Spartan's mast was the largest mast I'd ever dealt with on a 60 foot boat. I guess she would have been about 35 or 40 centimeters from front to back that's about two feet and that means that you've got a mast which, even when you're in the Southern Ocean with 60 knots blowing, um, has an incredible surface area. So there's a lot about these boats we can see already is very, very different from a normal, normal boat. The thing which is the result of all of these design choices is that you have a boat which can do 
30 odd knots and you know the highest speed I ever did in Spartan that was towards the end of the race was 33 and a half knots so it's not a it's not on a wish list it's a real thing that these boats go incredibly fast and if you've come from <clears throat> sailing boats like the the Clipper 68s um, you know to be honest they do 12 knots in every direction um, I, I say I have a, a fantastic soft spot for the Clipper 68s but despite the fact that I remember writing a blog when I did my clipper race saying we'd hit 28 knots or something, you know, that's a surf downhill in the Pacific in very big conditions um, with, a, with a, a crew on board who uh, were trying to chase down boats ahead of them. Most of that number really is gravity. It's not that they can do 28 knots, it's that they can fall at 28 knots. And there's a lot of boats who have got um, high record speeds um, which are actually based on surfs. And if you ever have navigational software running, which is, has the ability to create polars, to create speed graphs for the boat, um, one of the settings on that is that it will ignore any numbers which are more than 140% of expected target speed because it's just a surf. The difference with Open 60s is that you have a boat that can sit on 20 knots. And that took some getting used to. But I get ahead of myself. So I'm sitting there on this first day, looking at this boat, this would be the Monday after Robin had given me his, uh, his offer. I've said yes, he's come down. I remember he, uh, he showed me around the boat and um, Robin, if you haven't met him, Sir Robin Knox Johnson is uh, a formidable sailor, a formidable businessman and uh, an incredible uh, mentor to anybody who has the luck to be able to work with him. I think he only has one lesson to teach and it is work hard and uh, take the hits and uh, and never give up. And that's what I would say I got from, from working with him. So going down to his boat, as he then hands it off to me for the year, um, he's showing me around all these different systems and things. And as I say, we, along with most of the other Clipper Skippers, already snuck on board and, and had a look at most of it already. But uh, incredible to be given the opportunity to, uh, to learn from him. But I remember he uh, started up the engine, which was a little uh, Volvo, and... Uh, it starts up, there's a lot of load running on the alternator because the batteries, uh, you know, needed charging and uh, the fan belt starts squeaking away and he said, oh, don't worry about that. Reaches into a, uh, a locker where he's obviously uh, a muscle reflex to, to grab something that was in there, grabs out a can of what kind of looked like WD-40, gives the belt a bit of a, you know, with the WD-40 and silence prevails. He and I then look at the can that he's got in his hand and it's actually spray fixative and someone's moved all the cans around and now the alternator pulleys are uh, covered in glue. Um, at which point he looks at me and says, well, your problem now, and <laughs> walks out of the boat. So <laughs> the thing which became very, very apparent is the fact that the boat needed a hell of a lot of work. As I say, somebody had already taken on the boat with a uh, an idea to run it in the Velux 5 Oceans race and uh, with a budget of uh, 440,000 euros gave the boat back and said it wasn't possible. So I'm stood there with a quarter of that looking at this boat thinking how on earth am I going to do this? And the answer really was work out what you've got and then work out what you need. Like it's the old uh, survival tactic for anybody caught out in the in the open. It, what have you got? What do you need? You need shelter, you need warmth, you need food. Um, on the boat, okay, is the mast in good condition? Is the the hull and the appendages in good condition. And that's what we did initially. There's a wonderful picture somewhere of, um, of the very first day. And Robin's method for starting off this process was get the hull clean, which involved us taking a halyard from the top of the open 60s mast, running it down onto my Clipper 68, Qingdao, right by the mast, and then just cranking the 60 over onto its side uh, so we could clean it off, which we duly did with help from some of the other clipper skippers, uh, with uh, literally with with scrapers, with it right there in the marina, tied fore and aft, got the bottom relatively clean, and the idea was really to set off immediately on the um, the qualifier, which I think Robin probably could have done because he'd already sailed the boat round the world, but for someone like me who was new to the situation, I needed I needed the opportunity to go through things a bit. I needed to learn at least how everything worked so I could go out onto the ocean and not kill myself. And I guess there was a little bit of nervousness as well. So we took the boat down to the local uh, boatyard uh, and Gosport there in Dever Key, who were fantastic to us throughout the whole of the preparation with this boat. And we had the boat uh, lifted out, and we had the rigger 
have a look over the boat, have a look over the rig and this, uh, this Kevlar PBO rigging that holds the mast up and make sure that it was safe. And that was where the first bad news kicked in, in that the rigging on the boat was declared to be unsafe and needed changing out. So on these boats, it's not metal rigging. It's, um, it's a, a rope rigging, essentially. It's PBO, it's Kevlar based um, with a, a plastic sheath around it. And that PBO comes down into something that's like a Norseman fitting, a kind of cone fitting that crushes the end of the line. Um, incredibly strong. The full stay loads on uh, Spartan were, it was rated for 27 tons and it would probably only be about, I don't know, 16 mil, something like that, not that big. Any doubt whether that rigging was good meant that we had to change it out. And of course, it was just the right time of year that as soon as we got onto Navtech, the manufacturers in France, they told us that they were just about to close for the two weeks holiday that France has every year and that it would take two weeks to make the rigging once they were back from the holidays. So immediately there was a four week period where we weren't going to be doing anything. So take that problem, take that challenge, make it into a new strength. And what we did is decided to use this period to do the refit on the boat. We had intended to go and do the uh, the, the the qualifying passage and by we I mean the people that were suddenly starting to to come into my life to make all of this happen so we changed it around we decided that okay we'll do the the, the refit period now four weeks and then I'll go and do the qualifier and then we'll be ready to go to the start line so who were the people I guess is the the next thing to cover well there was a couple of people kind of uh, mixing around at the beginning but it came really down to three people and the three people um, I can introduce now, one was my fiance at the time, who had been already an incredible strength to me when I did the Clipper race. Uh, we had quite a new relationship when I went into the Clipper race. And uh, with seven months of training uh, before we left, which was literally five and a half days a week, so we'd had very little time together. And we had been looking forward to me coming home and uh, and having a normal life. And the, Velux opportunity came along and she had been incredibly supportive trying to make that happen. But I think the reality of it actually happening was so far flung that we didn't really have to consider the the ramifications of what, what may be the landscape if it happened. Well, suddenly it was happening. And uh, although during the preparation of the boat, um, she was to provide the most incredible uh, support, the preparation of the boat was also the the end of our relationship. It was not going to be a reality that that we could be apart again for a year whilst I sailed around the world. I think later on in life, uh, I realized the huge amount of stress it creates um, doing these kind of things. And for the, for the people left behind, you know, they don't know if, uh, if you've fallen off the deck in that last storm. They don't know if that uh, last report of... Um, you know, ice down south is the the presage to to some terrible disaster, and that stress is something she'd already endured for um, for nine months with Clipper, and I think it it probably took me a couple of years to work it out, but uh, in the end, she made a very intelligent decision to separate herself from this. So she definitely was part of the team in the most fundamental way. Then there was my shore boss Donna, who had. Uh, already been with me as a round-the-world race crew uh, on the Clipper race, had been the Vittler, the person that provisions the boat. She had been my barometer through all sorts of crew situations. She had um, been on a big emotional journey herself um, on the Clipper race, uh, having lost her partner Ian a short time before the Clipper race began. And, um, and we'd been through literally hell and high water together and uh, it was incredible that she was able to come on board and for the entirety of the Velux race um, from the very start there in the boatyard right through to the the finish line was always there to uh, to get me through to the next day and uh, I should be forever indebted to her. The third person was Aston. Now <laughs> Aston was basically a lad that was helping out around the boatyard, incredibly skilled with cars, a great uh, painter, sprayer, very keen to get into working with uh, carbon. Good on on like any job. He was my kind of guy because he could he could cowboy things up when he needed to. He knew when it had to be you know done right. And uh, we we set up a, a friendship there, which um, 
still continues to this day. And I can uh, happy to report that he's now um, he's spraying Vestas, the uh, the Volvo boat that was recently fixed. He's doing carbon work for BAR, the America's Cup team. He has flown since these times. So uh, very proud of uh, where he's uh, got to. But back at the beginning, he was just a guy with a lot of tattoos and a cap and a whole heap of attitude. But uh, he kept things light and breezy and uh, that made all the difference. So with just four of us and not much of a clue between us anything about open 60s, uh, we set two. And the first job was clear out all of the crap that was inside the boat, as is always the way. Uh, spares and tools and old sailing gear, it's ropes and all the rest of it all needs to come out. And then the first order of the day was um, to, to paint the interior of the boat, which uh, we got a couple of guys in just on super cheap wages, just helping out. They came in and started to paint the inside of the boat. We went through the hydraulics on the keel because it's got a very delicate hydraulic system that allows the a pump to pump the keel from port to starboard. It also has a manual pump system which is there in case the uh, in case the electrics are not available. Um, but we didn't take the keel off, and I remember meeting Alex Thompson uh, for the first time in Endeavour Key. And he came over and started chatting to us about uh, the project. Obviously, he's got the Hugo Boss Open 60 campaign and has come now third and second in the Vendée Globe. He's a man who knows a lot about uh, open 60s. First question from him, have you taken the keel off? Well, the answer to that was no. And the reason for that was basically a somewhat kind of fatalistic uh, philosophy on my behalf. Basically, I knew that if we released the keel pin and started to take the whole keel assembly apart, there were two possible outcomes. Either A, there was big problems with it, and in which case we couldn't afford to fix them and the whole gig was up. Or B, there were no problems with it, in which case we shouldn't have taken it apart. So it's kind of like Schrodinger's keel. Basically, uh, I had a 50% chance, whilst it was all still together, that everything was fine. And if I took it apart, I was then opening up my opportunity for it to be 100% reality that I could not do this race. So although it sounds a little bit crazy and maybe a little bit reckless, remember it was my own life that was in my hands, not anybody else's. I wouldn't have made the same decision if there was other people on the boat with me. But to keep the wheels on the campaign, I made a decision to not take the keel apart. To give you an idea, I was talking to a friend of mine, Sylvain, uh, who works uh, at CMN in Cherbourg. Um, they built a lot of these open 60s. He had one back recently which is the sister ship of Spartan and they had to do some work on the on the keel it had been left in a uh, anchorage in Malta and stray current from surrounding commercial ships had made its way through the keel structure through the keel pins and probably out through the boat's um, grounded electrical system and uh, the whole pin had to be replaced on the keel. The bolts which secure the the bearing uh, retention plates at the end of the keel had to be replaced 10 bolts to hold those plates in, each bolt 1,000 euros. The pin itself, 10,000 euros. You see the kind of amounts that add up here. We just didn't have that in the budget. To give you an idea, the budget that we had went something like this. 25,000 for mainsail, 25,000 for rigging, 25,000 for rigger and rope and putting the whole like deck structure back together again. And that leaves about 25,000 for other stuff and this is other stuff to go on a boat which has not sailed hardly at all in four years. So we didn't have 25 extra in case there was something wrong with the keel. So um, I said to Alex, no, we haven't. And I remember he shook my hand. He lifted up his sunglasses and said, good luck, mate, and walked off. And it was actually very, very funny about a year and a half later when I got back from successfully going around the world, having had only a small issue with my keel, and met up with him and we did laugh about that because uh, obviously that wasn't a case of luck that was a case of um, horseshoe up the ass so anyway there we are in the boatyard we've got this thing in pieces um, beforehand it was light blue which had been the colors that uh, Sir Robin had raced under we wanted to change that to something stronger and so it started to come around of okay well, what color are we going to paint this boat and I started to look at you know, what am I going to call it? What am I going to call this campaign? We had no sponsors. We were desperately looking around for sponsorship, but the time period was just too short, and uh, I was a complete unknown. So I realized that rather than turn up at the start line of a major race with a, a white bear-hulled boat, it'd be better if we created a personality for the boat. So we went through all sorts of different ideas. We with the Hong Kong background and the, uh, the the Chinese kind of influence, we're thinking about dragon. 
Um, the number 88 is very big in, uh, in um, Chinese culture. The shape of the number 88 looks like a, a Chinese uh, symbol, which means double happiness, which is a symbol of luck. So oh, maybe call it 88 and get some Chinese sponsorship. And you're trying to think all this stuff up. And I don't know exactly how it came around. I think I'd been watching the, the film 300, which was out at the time. And I thought, you know, what, let's call it Spartan. Because uh, Spartans took on a huge force with a very small unit. You know, they were there was only 300 of them and there was hundreds of thousands or if you watch the film like millions of Persians and um, they had to be they had to be smart and they had to be tactical and I thought that's kind of where we were at they had to be brave which I guess we were being um, you know to, to think that we could do this and I guess on the flip side the other thing was that that was the state of our bank account like Spartan right so the the Spartan name was born and then the Spartans have this kind of inverted V shape on their shields so I turned that around and made a, a shield logo, the logo of Spartan, the company now, with this red uh, lower section to the shield. And then we took that and put that onto the bow of the boat. We painted the deck in a V shape. We painted the, the red bow on, well, actually put vinyl on, sorry. We, we colored the, the bow into this tomato red color, silver at the back. And uh, the result was that the boat from above looked exactly like the logo. So it worked on a couple of different levels. And if you want to see another uh, movie connection, the font that we use to spell out Spartan on our, our company name is actually the, a font called Matter, which was the font used for the Spider-Man film, which had just been released at the time. So you can see where my, uh, my film-watching interests are. But uh, now we had a boat that was coloured, which is good. We got some sponsorship from International, who came down and mostly gave us paint. We got sponsorship from uh, Marlowe, who were fantastic rope manufacturers. They basically cut their prices to 50%, which was just amazing. Uh, when you bear in mind that on these boats you have something like 1.5 kilometers or about a mile of rope on board the boats, you start to get an idea of what a, a highly priced commodity um, rope is. The rope that we use on the boats is 12 mil Dyneema. Uh, the core of the rope is a 12-strand braided core, and then an, an aramid mix exterior. That is to say it's got um, some aramid fibers to make the outside of it tougher. Um, the, the rope itself um, has a breaking strain of about 7,800 kilos, um, which again gives you an idea. Basically, we could almost lift the entire boat on one of these 12 mil ropes, which is about half an inch and the breaking strain around 16,000 pounds if we're running in uh, old money there. But um, the main point being that... Uh, this stuff doesn't come cheap. In fact, uh, I actually had to go back to the marketplace recently and look at this. And uh, 12 mil Dyneema from Marlowe Racing TT is around $6.85 a foot. So if you work that out to a yard, you know, to nearly a meter, you're talking 20 US dollars. You're on about, you're on 12 to 15 pounds. Uh, you know, what's that? It's like 25 Canadian. I've got to do a lot of different currencies here for the people I know I'm talking to. But we're talking a lot of money per meter or per foot here. Getting one of these boats rigged is um, is a ten thousand uh, pound, fifteen thousand uh, uh, dollar enterprise if you're going to put new rope on it. So getting fifty percent off of Marley was amazing. The other people which gave a sponsorship at the time, which was unbelievable and one of the most fun days I've had in all of this, uh, was Raymarine. And I'm a big fan of Raymarine. I'm a, uh, an ambassador for Raymarine and. Uh, Man alive, like that was the best. Like we literally, Raymarine, if you're not aware, are based in the UK, very close to Gosport where we were doing this project in a place called Leon Solon. And I phoned them up and um, and talked to the head of international media relations, a lady called Fiona Pankhurst, who was fantastic to us throughout this whole campaign. And uh, said, hey, you know, I've, I've got this boat and we're doing this thing and uh, can I come over and talk to you about it, show you my proposal? She said, yeah, no problem, uh, you know, come on, come on over. So I drive over there and I've got an idea in my head that maybe they might give me a chart plotter or, or give me a discount. I guess that's what I was really looking for. Can we get a discount? So I talked to Fiona for 30 minutes and I don't think I necessarily realized at the time that she was the head of international relations. I think she was, I, I just thought she was a lady that worked at Raymarine. Like there was a lot going on. I hadn't necessarily read the, you know, the, the tag next to her name on the website. So we go through the whole thing, and she listens very politely, and we, I get to the end of my spiel, which is basically, I'm penniless, I'm sailing around the world, can you help? And she, uh, she pulls out, literally from under her desk, um, 
this copy of my proposal, which I'd sent her in PDF format, and she thumbs through it, gets to one picture in the middle, which is literally just some picture from, I don't know, the beginning of the clip race. She sh hands me the paper across the desk and says, um, do you often work with this man? And I looked at the picture and it was just somebody interviewing me uh, in, in, in Hull before we set off on the clipper race. I said, no. She said, well, in that case, no problem at all. And to this day, I have no idea who that person was, um, but obviously there was some issue there. And she said, yep, no problem at all. You get down to the technical department and tell them everything you need. It's on us. And like, you're kidding me. So this is like, you go down there and obviously the lads that work in this department are used to fitting out uh, pro boats um, with unlimited budgets, soup yachts, the rest of it. To, you sort of start out like, um, maybe I need a chart plotter. They're like, yep, you need this one. They give me one of the brand new hybrid touch, you know, it was this is six years ago, hybrid touch uh, displays. Oh, and you probably need a spare. Okay, autopilots. Do you need autopilots? Well, we've got some. No, you'll need autopilots. So the boat has two entirely separate autopilot systems. They give me the whole schmozzle from like the brains the rams, two headers for each system, uh, everything I possibly need. Okay, instruments, what have you got? So we go through the whole thing, and that was just the beginning with Raymarine. Um, after that day, they kind of got an idea of roughly where I was at. They came down to the boat, they fit things, they sorted it all out, they problem-solved all the way around the world. They were absolutely fantastic. But thank God, because um, 25,000 remaining euros in our uh, account after the, uh, the the riggers, the rope, the um, the, the sail and the, the actual rigging gear, the, there was no extra to be buying out for new um, I instruments and electronics. So uh, thank God for Raymarine. So to give you an idea of the kind of style of things that we had to do, we had to get super savvy about what needed to be done and uh, what we could afford to do. So take, for example, the rudders. The rudders on the boat has got dual tillers on deck, and they should really have like an, an extender so that you can sit on the side deck and, and operate the tiller. Now, as it was, the more and more I went around the world, the less and less I helmed. I think what I had to realize is that just because I got this opportunity, I wasn't transported into being the world's best helmsman. Um, what I was able to do was uh, correctly operate the autopilot system and maybe even operate it with some skill and get the best out of the boat in that fashion. But I would have helmed about 5% of the time sailing around the world. But at the the start... You're thinking, man, I'm going to be there like morning, noon, and night. And because of my input, the boat's going to be going faster. Well, if you're Michel Desjoyeaux, you probably can helm faster than an autopilot. I can helm faster than an autopilot for about 10 minutes until I lose concentration. Uh, and then it's best just to be on autopilot. But uh, at the beginning, you think you're going to be there all the time. So we need uh, an Attila extension. So I found out how much it was to get bespoke carbon fiber uh, extensions made. And it was around 5,000 pounds. So it's like, well, that ain't going to happen. So we went around to U-Boat, which is the, um, <laughs> that's Y-O-U-B-O-A-T, not U-Boat like German submarines, U-Boat um, uh, in Gosport. And uh, again, for people that are fantastic to us throughout all of this, and went in there and had a look, okay, what extension you've got? And they basically had these tiny Harken uh, extensions, which would be the kind of thing that you put like on a laser. It's like a golf club. Basically, just a, a thin extrusion of, uh, of aluminium um, and then with a little foam handle on the end, and that's it. So, we had a look at these like, okay, they are not going to be strong enough for helming a, an open 60. So what can we do about this? So, I sit and have a chinwag with, uh, with Aston, and uh, what we come up with is basically we get a piece of 12 mil Dyneema core, we soak most of it in epoxy. And then we pull it through the center of the, the tiller extension so the soaked epoxy section is completely filling the internals of this aluminium tube. And a nice dry piece of, uh, uh, of Dyneema with no epoxy on it is hanging out the end. So let it all go off for a couple of days. Brilliant. We go back to the rudders. We drill a little hole in the end of each rudder, right where you right, so each tiller exactly where your hand would be. We thread the piece of dry Dyneema down through it. We tie a stopper knot on the back. We get a plumber's clip for for putting half-inch copper pipe up on walls. We put that down the back of the tiller, and suddenly we've got an incredibly strong aluminum and foam uh, tiller extension with hardened Dyneema epoxy kind of mix in the center. We have a fantastic uh, universal joint provided by the Dyneema, which is very resistant to abrasion passing through the end of the carbon fiber tiller and we have a fantastic way to clip it back down onto itself so it's out the way and tidy with the plumber's clip total price 
50 quid. So we had to do this all the way through. We had to do this with every single thing that we possibly could. The paint that we got from, uh, from International, I think in the end it was actually something called Interdeck, which is what they give to uh, fishermen. And they conceded to me that they actually paint onto the floors of their warehouses because it's completely bomb-proof. But that's because they were giving us a huge discount they weren't giving us it for free, and the amounts that we needed, we had to um, we had to look at what's the cheapest we could get. Um, I think in the end, they did actually tell me to stop mentioning in press releases that it was Interdeck and to tell people it was uh, Brightside or something more expensive. Because uh, if anybody found out how tough Interdeck is, they just wouldn't buy, wouldn't buy anything else. So, <clears throat> as the process goes along, suddenly the big change was when suddenly the rigging uh, arrived back from France and the, the rig suddenly went up and uh, Brian uh, from Kiwi Rigging had, had put the boat back together again. He'd made it back into a, a functioning craft. And it got to this point where it was like on the water and, you know, we had pushed dates back and back and back as we've been doing all this work. As I mentioned in the first podcast, myself and my fiance were living in a... Uh, a VW uh, Type 25 Westphalia VW van, a camper van, underneath the boat, in the boatyard. It was kind of a weird period because there was a lot of stress going on because the relationship was starting to um, kind of crumble. Um, it was a lot of excitement because of this incredible project that we were involved in. We are living in this van in a boatyard and like hopping over the gate of the boatyard each night to go over to these nearby uh, marina bathrooms to use those because there was very obviously little facilities in the van. Uh, a completely spooky period and then I think the other thing which was a big problem was the fact that during the day we would kind of fold back the bed in the in the van and then get out the table and then uh, Donna and the other people that were working with us would go in there and kind of use it as an office it's like our home became an office for the day and then we were living in a yard at night like I think you can see why it didn't work out so well but at the time I was totally oblivious because like anybody that gets involved in this kind of thing um you can't see the wood for the trees, right? You think that you're going to burn today to pay for tomorrow successfully, and then, uh, well, you do get to tomorrow, but um, you get there, you get there alone. So it had come to this point though, where this this mad period of what had then become about five weeks was getting to a point where we had a boat on the water, the mainsail which had been built, and most of it had been built by my by my fiance. That was her input to this. That she went and worked at the North Loft, and instead of paying their rate for work being done on the mainsail. I paid her wage rate for work done on the mainsail and that ended up being much, much cheaper. Um, thank goodness that she had that skill set. But it was then a case of uh we have to Chris, you gotta go. You gotta go and uh you gotta go and take this boat and get it out there and, and get ready to go to sea and, and do a qualifier because the race committee required me to do two and a half thousand miles before I was allowed to go in the race to prove the boat, to prove myself, to prove that I knew what I was doing. Now, to recap, I had never sailed solo uh, apart from like a 27-foot folk boat when I lived in Hong Kong for a couple of hours. I'd never sailed solo in my life. I'd never sailed an Open 60 apart from, I think, one lap of the Isle of Wight with Sir Robin and a load of other skilled sailors on board. And I, I was there basically like to you know pass the tea around. So I knew nothing. And... Uh, Myself and my fiance took the boat out of Gosport and took it up through the Solon. I remember her at the time saying to me, you look really scared. And I think that's where I had to admit like this. I've just come back from sailing around the world with a crew, a 21 man or 21 person crew, should I say, on board my clipper boat. And I'm looking at this thinking, Jesus wept, like, am I actually going to be able to handle this? We went up through the Solon and went and moored off of um, the green at Cowes. And uh, had a terrible night on uh, on the anchor with uh, the tide was going one way at five knots. And the boat and the wind were, were trying to stream out the other way. At, I think it was like 40 knots of wind. So the boat's shearing around all over the place around its mooring and uh, woke up in the middle of the night to discover that the boat had wrapped itself around the mooring chain, which... Uh, ended up being a feature of uh, another incident later on in the race. But at this point, yeah, we just wrapped around the mooring boy. We unwrapped it off the mooring boy using the engine. But the next day, wind's still blowing a hoolie, and she went ashore to go and get my life jacket and I think some AA batteries for something. <laughs> That's one memory. And uh, whilst she was gone, I just saw her and her family coming back onto the shore, and they're waving at me. And literally, almost as we're waving each other, I realized the boat is no longer attached to the mooring. Now, another detail with the Open 60 is that 
it only has a 40 horsepower engine. It's a 60 foot boat, but it has a very small engine because essentially it's just a generator. It does have a sail drive, it does have a propeller, but it's a two blade folding propeller and these engines are good for nothing. Like in flat water, they'll propel you at about four and a half, five knots. They're just there as a, well, they're just there really, I think, to conform with the absolute minimum requirements of the class. Um, and theoretically, you know, obviously you can get into dock and off the dock, but whether you could actually power up against any kind of wind, like you got no chance. You got a 90 foot rig, you got a boat which is like a surfboard, you got this tiny little like blender propeller, like it, nothing's gonna happen. So I start sliding sideways down the Solon. I start sliding down with the wind and now the tide is all going in the same direction. That's the problem that I've probably been using something like a, a bit of Dyneema as a mooring line, not concentrating, not seaman-like, uh, wasn't looking at it. What I was trying to do, I was trying to get my reef lines led because the, the line that we had got was too tight in the jammers and I actually had to strip the sheath off the lines and then the entire way around the world, I used reef lines which were just core, which if anybody's ever tried to jam Dyneema core in a in a jammer, a spinlock style jammer. It's like nigh on impossible. So yeah, all the way around the world with reef lines made like that. But um, I was doing that job and I just got it done. I was just waving to her and her family on the shore and suddenly we start sliding off down the Solent in 40 odd knots of wind. And I get on the phone quickly to her and she says, what's going on? I say, uh, broken the mooring line. Uh, like I gotta go, I gotta go right now. Cause you know, obviously what I gotta do immediately is get the boat lined up and direction of travel and not hit the shore and everything else. But there was food on board. The boat was theoretically ready to go. It hadn't sailed in however long I'd never sailed it, but the last view she ever got of me, uh, or not, not ever got, <laughs> but the last view she got of me before, uh, I came back was sliding sideways, complete disarray, sails down 45 knots, didn't plan the departure like there's no wonder she needed to have a lifetime off from me but what happened well I went off around the corner Osborne house passed by my view as I was sliding off down the Solent and uh, in 40 odd knots I got the storm jib rigged for the first time I got the mainsail up to the fourth reef because these boats have such big mainsails that you actually can put four reefs in and uh, started off down the Solent using the engine to kind of you know, uh, avoid all the, the the navigational marks, the sandbanks, all that kind of stuff. Passed around the bottom of the Isle of Wight at Benbridge Ledge, and um, and like next destination is the Azores. That's where I had to go. I had to go to the Azores, and then back and round Island or something. Whatever it was, it was two and a half thousand miles. So I set off into the Channel, and thank goodness this uh, storm passed within like twelve hours. And uh, then it became very, very calm on the other side. And it gave me an opportunity to do things like, hey, let's put the mainsail up for the first time and see see what that looks like. Because <laughs> we just basically stacked it onto the boom without ever putting it up. So let's make sure that works. Let's put a reef in or two. Let's operate the furling gear. Um, let's put away all of the tools and all of the stores which are inside the boat. It probably took me 48 hours to get to a point where I even knew the lines properly on deck had an inside of a boat that was vaguely usable and um you know even the autopilots like i never literally never fired up and operated the autopilot so i start heading towards the source obviously the i've got a tracker on board the boat that's been given to me by the race authority and they're watching what's going on but we're getting close like really close to i think the start of this race was the 10th of october i seem to remember so we're now probably in the middle of september and I'm setting off on this to do two and a half thousand miles. I sailed upwind and down in fair weather and foul. Like I went through a 45 knot storm three or four days out in the western approaches in six or eight meter seas. I, I was completely becalmed then behind that. I then started reaching towards the Azores. I then started beating towards the Azores and it was going on and on and on. And after seven or eight days, they said, like basically, we're happy that you've shown that you know what you're doing with the boat. We're happy that you've been through all sorts of weather systems and the boat's okay. Just turn around and get to the start area as quickly as you can. Because if I remember correctly, uh, we had to be there on the 1st of October. So I turned around and luckily it was a reach back to the UK. And I, I reached downwind and started to power this boat up for the first time. And hitting 14, 15, 16 knots and sitting on those speeds for the first time was a very, very exciting week of my sailing career. I got to tell you, the thing you also got to bear in mind is that now I was just getting used to sailing solo and, and the, the sleep situation. Like, um, 
basically what happens for solo sailing is that you sleep for 20 minutes at a go. So if you imagine I'm doing 15 knots uh, down, uh, you know, whatever course, and just as I put my head down below, a light pops up on the horizon. So there was nothing in sight, and I'd just gone below, and a light just came over the horizon. The worst case scenario. That boat is heading, for whatever reason, directly towards me, and our approach speed is 100%. We're going to hit each other if something doesn't happen. So working on the basis that most ships at sea now with super slow steaming protocol are doing about 15 knots, and working on the basis that my boat is most likely to be doing about 15 knots, a boat coming over the horizon, I'll see its nav lights at about 12 miles. I'll see it hull up at about 7 or 8, but I'll see the nav lights at about 12. So it's 12 miles away from me. I'm doing 15 miles, uh, 15 knots. It's doing 15 knots, approaching each other at a combined speed of 30 knots. That 12 knot, uh, that 12 mile distance is about 20 minutes away, to roughly, give or take. Uh, and the likelihood of you being on an exactly reciprocal course, you know, and your boat's only 20 foot wide, 20 minutes is a pretty good, between 15 and 20 minutes, you need to be awake again. And what tends to happen for me when I'm at sea is that I actually sleep in about 10 or 15 minute um, snatches, go up on deck, have a look around, straight back down, 10 or 15 minutes, go on deck, have a look around, straight back down. And in terms of watch keeping, the, the criticism always with solo sailors is that you're unable to comply with one of the, the fundamental rules of the international collision regulations, which is that you must keep a good watch. Um, I would say that um, most modern craft are not actually posting a watch all the time. You have a helmsman out there, but anybody that's using an autopilot after you know even a week of using autopilot, you are not standing on deck watching all the time. 15 to 20 minutes is mathematically a safe period of time to be below. Now, if you're going to start pushing it and you're going to be below for half an hour or an hour, well, then you better be fatalistic or lucky or whatever it is you've chosen to be because something bad's going to happen. But um, if you stay on 15, 20 minutes, no problem in terms of keeping a good watch. The effect on the body and the mind, however, is uh, is very different. And you do start to experience some you know, weird waking asleep uh, situations. Technically, what happens is when you sleep, there's chemicals that are released into your body that paralyze your body so you uh so you don't act out your dreams um if you wake up and you're still paralyzed in newfoundland which is where my wife's from they call it the old hag the old hag's got you but um for <laughs> that seems a petrifying it's the idea is actually that the old hag is sitting on your chest and you can't move like it's a petrifying idea but the the reality is yeah what happens is you wake up and you can't move at all and actually your only recourse is to close your eyes and go back to sleep and try and stay relaxed about it. These kind of things become part of your everyday life. And the, how do you wake up so regularly? Well, you have something called a screaming meanie or a custom system in the boat, which um, is a 110 decibel alarm clock that goes off. And I've got some stories for later on about not hearing that alarm clock and nearly getting into a few pickles. But um, i got to tell you, in the end, when you get more experience with this stuff, the wake-up call is you may die, and that's a fantastic alarm clock. But at the beginning, 110 decibel alarm right next to your head is uh, is a pretty good wake-up. But um, there's all these things you've got to get used to, you know. Of uh, So getting used to the power of the boat, getting used to how you do basic functions like reefing, how do you do put up the spinnakers how do you deal with roller furling heads roller furling headsaws i knew roller furling spinnakers i didn't know before i got on that boat the canting keel how does that work what's safe what's not safe water ballast like dagger boards you name it and this this two-week period i spent at sea getting used to that boat was the steepest learning curve i have ever been involved in in sailing i, I scared myself i i i had highs i had lows I think I came back with a fundamental understanding of the fact that I knew nothing um, <clears throat> and, a, and a resolute kind of uh, desire to just go as slowly as I could to begin with just to keep the thing safe. So back as fast as I could, herring back to the UK, one of my favorite memories of that is coming into the British Channel, or the English Channel, sorry, coming in towards the uh, the Needles, which is that famous set of pinnacly white rocks off the edge of... Uh, the western end of the Isle of Wight, which uh, an area that, that means an awful lot to me. And um, coming in through there in one of the world's fam most famous tidal races, going in on the tide, 
with my Code 5 spinner cassette full main, autopilot, and absolutely nailing this entrance into there and breaking into the Solon in, uh, in sunlight and then uh, and making my way down to, to Cows once again and, uh, and arriving back in my own mind in a kind of uh, shower of glory after the, uh, the despicable way in which I'd uh, left in a, literally under a cloud. But um, I think when I got back, I realized that um, the boat was ready and I was ready. So I remember we loaded it all up and the last sail that I ever took with my then fiance was from the UK to France to La Rochelle to bring the boat into La Rochelle Marina and to then park her alongside the other five boats that were getting ready to do the race and to go in and, uh, and tell the guys I'm here as promised. And I got a a race ready boat like we sell a lot of spit and polish to do and there was a lot of jobs that got done on the dock but in just eight weeks we had gone from stepping off the back of one round the world boat fixed up a boat which had been unused for four years learnt that boat learnt how to sail it at least to some degree solo overcome um, the financial problems that were in our way started a kind of uh, a brand and a, and a kind of image for the boat problem solved around uh, everything we could and um decided to uh, ignore what we couldn't control, i.e. the keel, and, uh, and had successfully delivered the boat to the start area in preparation for the, the Velux Five Oceans race. So I was incredibly proud to be there, and it was a, a very exciting period because there was all this wind-up to the race uh, happening. But um, unfortunately, the reality was that was the last trip I ever took with, uh, with my fiancé on a boat. And um, from there on in, uh, we were... We were two separate units, and I don't think that I made the best job of that separation, but uh, these things are never good, but you have to keep on soldiering on, and uh, the job that was in front of me there was to sail solo around the world. The adventure had just begun, but as anybody who's ever tried to get a, a boat to a start line will know, just getting there is the, the biggest issue. So one down, one big problem down, one big mistake and one loss that I would have to forever deal with, but ahead of me, one enormous challenge. And uh, we can get into exactly what it was like to set off on my first leg in the next podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening, and I welcome any feedback that you may have. If I'm going too slow now, then tell me to speed up. You know, people ask me when I got back, so how was it? And uh, at first, you give them like some huge diatribe about what it's like. Then after a couple of years, you end up just saying, well, it was fine. So <laughs> we can reduce it down to just that if you like. But for now, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers.